Welcome to the Beyond the Sermon podcast, where we take your questions from Sunday's teachings in order to form a dialogue about the scriptures and what God is teaching each and every one of us. Well, welcome back to the Beyond the Sermon podcast. Here we are doing a a second part here for our teaching through Acts chapter 17. We've got some additional questions here that came in after the teaching time. uh, As obviously, I think as people have been uh, continuing to chew on the the text, and so this is awesome. I love I love it. But our our first episode for the uh, for the Acts 17 uh, ran close to the 25 minute mark, and so we try to keep it between 20 to 25 minutes every week here for our Behind the Sermon podcast length. And so we're doing a second part here as more questions have have come in, which I love. I love that we get to have this dialogue around the scriptures as we chew on these things together. And, and so some of the questions that have come in are uh, are these. Uh, one, why does Luke go out of his way to mention believing women so much? And it's true. I think Luke's gospel has often been called the gospel of women, because when you read the gospel of Luke, you'll see he notes prominent female figures and and the inclusion of women more than the other three gospels do. Uh, Acts, again, here in, in Acts chapter 17, where he's noted uh, two or three times within this passage that prominent women, women are also coming to faith. We had Lydia in Acts chapter 16, this prominent influential businesswoman. So why does he do that? Well, I think I think the simplest explanation, um, and there's there's much that has been made of this, and I think some of those explanations are, are probably not very helpful or not very accurate, where we bring in some some of our preconceptions to the conversation, and we we maybe read into it more than Luke is reading into it. But when we read Luke and when we read the book of Acts, there's one main storyline that Luke is advancing through through both parts, right? We need to think of the book of Luke or the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts as uh, a two-part volume, right? Uh, the gospel is, uh, the gospel of Luke is part one, and it teaches about Jesus, talks about Jesus, who he is, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. So Luke is declaring all about Jesus in his gospel. And then secondly, the book of Acts is about the power of the resurrection being manifested through the life of the early church, of how the power of the resurrection is changing people's lives. And he's writing both the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts to his friend Theophilus. We we hear it um, at, at the beginning of the gospel, and, and again, at, at especially particularly at the beginning of Acts, he says, oh, my dear Theophilus, right? In the first book I wrote to you, the gospel of Luke, um, you know, I talked to you all about who Jesus was, and now here I'm talking to you about what Jesus has done, the power of the resurrection. And why? Because Theophilus is this influential um, non-Jewish, so Greek, Roman uh, leader. And, uh, and and so most likely most scholars think that he is at some place, he's wavering in his faith, right? It's not it's not legal, it's not popular to be a Christian in the first century. And so he's maybe he's wavering in his faith or he's a or he's new into his faith. And so Luke is writing this two-volume set to to encourage him, to spur him on to say, no, no, Theophilus, hold fast, hold tight to the promises of Jesus because because he is the one. He really is the Messiah. 
he has saved us and is working out his goodness in and through us. And so, so Luke is writing that, uh, the, the two-part volume. And, and as he's doing that, the main storyline that he's writing to Theophilus and, and then uh, down the line to us is that salvation is for everyone. Uh, when we started the, when we started our series in the book of Acts, we said it this way: Acts chapter one, verse eight, Jesus' final command to disciples: um, uh, You're to wait for the Holy Spirit, and then in, you stay here in Jerusalem. You're to wait for the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you are to be my witnesses. You are to bear witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You are to carry the good news of the gospel to the very farthest corners of the earth. Why? Because the gospel is for everyone, because salvation is for everyone. Luke continually will highlight that, both in the ethnic ramifications, right? Acts chapter 17, Paul and Silas and crew, they're now in Europe. They've, they've gone from Asia Minor in Turkey. They crossed over into Macedonia, modern-day Greece. They have gone further and farther than anyone else. Any of the other apostles have traveled to this point uh, because the gospel is for everyone. Salvation is for all. Luke is going to end the book of Acts in chapter 28, verse 28, by saying, even the Gentiles will believe. If you go back and you read that verse, there's this almost this hyperbolic statement, like even they believe, even they are included, right? It's, it's this kind of this, oh, wow, how amazing, how profound, how prolific is that? So I think one of the ways that Luke advances that theme throughout the book of Acts, and even in his gospel, is by the inclusion of women. Part of it, too, is that Luke is writing a history here. He's recording factual evidence. And so when he puts the names of prominent people or people in the, in the story, it was for those that were around to go, oh, yeah. I, can, I know who that person is, or I've heard of that person, right? It, it legitimizes and validates the story that he's telling, the history that he's recording. And so again, so part of it is, uh, why does he include women so much? Because he's, he's, he's advancing the idea, the main storyline, that salvation truly is for all. It's for all people of all ethnic standings, all socioeconomic standings, all religious standings, um, and, and genders. Men and women are all included in this new kingdom of Jesus, right? Um, and so that, that's, that's great. That is great. That is great news. Um, one of the other questions that, that came in here is this uh, idea, how does, someone, uh, how does someone get a hard heart, right? And, and another question that came in a, a few weeks ago uh, was asking about Pharaoh and Pharaoh's hard heart, right? So how does someone get a hard heart? Well, I think part of it is that we are, we're born with a nature that is against God. We're born with a nature that is in rebellion. So Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12 there, right? Uh, sin entered the world through one man, Adam. Uh, all men were then condemned to death. All men inherited his rebellious nature. And so because of that, right, uh, we are born with, with this uh, uh, anti-gospel sense within our heart. We believe that we are good enough to save ourselves. Well, the gospel says you have to die to self in order to accept Jesus, right? You have to admit, I'm not good enough, but there is one who is that can take my place. That's Jesus. So part of it is, it's part of our original sin nature, the hardness of our hearts. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that God did not leave us without witness, right? He gave us the heavens, the earth, all of it as a witness to his glory and his presence and, and the fact that he is, he's real. 
yet he also allowed man to be given over to the to the desires of his heart, desires of his mind. We live in a Romans 1 mindset. We're depraved. Uh, our, we want to normalize our disordered desires. That's what Romans 1 is talking about. And, and so, so as we normalize our disordered desires, again, we grow the hardness of our hearts. The, our hearts begin to grow cold towards God. Um, Pharaoh is this example in the Exodus, right? Uh, the Exodus tells us that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And, and that's a kind of a challenging phrase because does God actually harden Pharaoh's heart? Um, well, I think one of the best ways that it was explained to me is this, is that if you, you have to go back and, and you have to look at the whole scenario, uh, God gives Pharaoh chance after chance after chance to, to respond, right? God demonstrates his power in increasing and indisputable ways. Every time that God does that, it's a chance of mercy towards Pharaoh, right? Plague number one, it's, a, it's, a, it's actually a gift of mercy. What, God, what Pharaoh deserves is just to be crushed, but God doesn't do that. He demonstrates his power to Pharaoh, gives Pharaoh a chance to respond in repentance, right? To go, oh no, there is one God. He's not any of the gods of our Egyptian, you know, uh, pantheon or a uh, you know uh, menu of gods. He's not Osiris. He's not. He's not the sun god, right? Uh, it, there is one true God, and it is the God of the, the Hebrew people. And so well, I'm going to repent. I'm going to follow all that kind of stuff. But Pharaoh doesn't. And every time Pharaoh doesn't, his heart grows harder. His heart grows colder. Bitterness drives up inside of him. So by the time that the 10th the tenth plague is, is there, is on hand, right? Um, Moses, who's writing Exodus, uh, I think he's, he's more describing the reality of Pharaoh's hard heart, you know, and saying that God gave him chance after chance after chance. And yet every time he said no to, to God, the, his heart grew harder and harder and harder until the point when I mean, he loses his son and just can't take it anymore. And then he lets the Israelites go, not because he believes in God, but because he can't take it anymore. And yet, what does he do? He rallies up the troops and goes after them because he wants them back, right? Because his heart is so hard. I think that's a lesson for us too. So how does someone get a hard heart? Well, we we continue um, to, to reject uh, those moments of mercy that God gives us. We continue to walk in our own strength. We continue to think that we can do it on our own. Again, the, the, the Jews in Thessalonica, they were so close. They said that Paul was, was teaching that there's another king and his name is Jesus. And that's correct. Paul was doing that, but they missed it. They missed the beautiful freedom and the salvific uh, reality of that, that Jesus was the Messiah and that he is the king that can set us free. He was the long-promised one that the Old Testament predicted and prophesied, right? And so uh, somewhere in there, I don't know whether it was their 
you know, their, their cultural purview that they saw themselves as this, this oppressed people and the Messiah was supposed to come and reign as a physical king and set them free and restore the kingdom of David. I mean, that's part of it. We know that that's part of it uh, for those who were in Jerusalem and the outlying areas of Jerusalem of why they didn't think Jesus was the Messiah because the Messiah wasn't supposed to die on the cross. He wasn't supposed to be humiliated as a political prisoner in the Roman Empire. Um, but so as they as they place stock in things that were not rooted in scripture but rooted in themselves and their own preconceptions um, their hearts did grow hard and their hearts did grow cold so that when they were confronted with the messiah and the evidence for the messiah um, they just they wanted no part of it and then they were jealous of paul and then we we talked about that in the previous episode of of, of being jealous of this new this new preacher that comes to town, this new teacher that comes to town, everybody's flocking to him. There's probably some insecurity there, but there's also this feeling of betrayal. Right? Paul is supposed to share their ethnic and religious heritage, and he's betraying them. He's welcoming the enemy, the oppressor, into the family. It's like it's like letting a, a fox into the hen house. You just don't do that, right? And and so so there's all kinds of layers there. But I think that's what what's going on. And when we look at Pharaoh, when his heart is hardened, um, I think part of it is that it's not that it's not that God went and hit a button and said, "Boop, your heart's hard, and and you're never going to repent." Here, it's actually that God gave him so many chances to repent, but every time he ignored those that that joy of repentance, as we talked about today, the joy of repentance that his heart grew colder and his heart grew harder. And then along with that, the question came about a passage in Romans chapter 11, uh, specifically verses 11 through 36, because it talks about both the inclusion of the Gentiles and then even that uh, the, 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 the Israelites, that their hearts were hardened for a season. And so this, the question, the person asking that question is like, what, what, is, what does Paul mean by that? And so what we have to go back to understand Romans as a whole, and what Paul is doing is he's writing his most theologically dense letter in the book of Romans. Paul is hoping um, that the church in Rome, which he did not plant, by the way, the church in Rome was planted by uh, by Jewish believers who were in Jerusalem at Pentecost back in, in the beginning of Acts, Acts chapter 1-2. Um, they were there, and then they carried the gospel back to Rome. And so the, God, the, the church in Rome is not planted by any of the apostles. It's planted by believers that were there at Pentecost. And so Paul, he's, he's finished his three missionary journeys. He's convinced that he is supposed to go to Rome. He's going to garner support in Rome, from the church in Rome. Rome is going to be his base of operations towards the westward expansion towards Spain. And he's going to go on the fourth missionary journey out to Spain and beyond. Right? And, and so he's writing to the church in Rome in the letter to the Romans. He's, he's basically, he's given a theological treatise. This is what I believe. This is what I'm about. Um, I want, you know, I want your support. He says it in chapter 15, 16, I want your support. And, and so you can know what I'm about. You can have confidence that you can support me, right? He's basically interviewing to be a, a missionary partner of this church in Rome. And so as he goes, he, in the book of Romans, he, he begins in this, he, he actually writes in this cycle, uh, our need, our need, uh, then is is A. A is our need. B is the gospel, God's solution. C is the product of the gospel of a transformed life, right? So Paul writes in that algebraic function in the book of Romans over and over again, and we can trace it. Uh, our need, the good news of the gospel, and the product of that, okay? And, and so by the time we get to Romans chapter 11, he's just following that pattern over and over again. And, and so what he's doing here in Romans 11 
is that he's reminding Gentile believers, hey, you were included. It's an amazing thing that you were included. Remember when you weren't included? Remember when you weren't allowed to be part of the family of God? Well, now you are. And and, and there's no strings attached and, and grace and grace and grace and grace, right? Um, and so I, I think in, in the first part of Romans chapter 11, he is, uh, he's, he's encouraging those Gentile believers on towards faithfulness. Um, but then in that second part of chapter 11, he, he talks about the mystery of Israel's coming salvation. And, and, and he says in t- verse 25, he says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And honestly, there's been a, a lot of theological debate and scholarly debate about what Paul means by that. Does it mean that there's going to be a is it a literal time period that X amount of Gentiles need to come to faith and then uh, we'll, we'll start the the, uh, the the evangelism to Israel then they'll believe um, I don't I don't know there's been so much debate and conversation around it um, and and no one solved it right and so we don't have the Apostle Paul to sit down and interview and go what did you exactly mean by that. In Romans chapter eleven, when you when you said that there was this partial hardening and it's going to remain until the Gentiles all believe, or enough Gentiles believe, or uh, and, and so we have to go with well, what do we know? That what's the simplest explanation or understanding in this? And so I think as we understand it, I think Paul's trying to figure out and, and understand part of and why don't more of my kinfolk? Why don't more of the people that I share this ethnic and religious heritage with, why don't they believe, right? Well, well, it has to be that there was just, there was just, again, through, through whatever cultural lenses that they had allowed to creep in, through unfaithfulness or whatever it is there, there there's just this, this hardening of their hearts that they could not see Jesus as Messiah. Part of that was that as Romans chapter one, we were already handed over to the desires of our hearts, that we were handed over to the desires of this age, right? And, and so that God gave us the freedom and the autonomy to, to engage in that way. And so so part of it is when we talk about, how, you know, how do hearts become hardened? It is this, it is this process that we, we own it as well, right? Uh, how we respond um, makes a big difference. And, and so if we, when our hearts are hard, it robs us of the joy of repentance. And I think that's what Paul is exactly saying in Romans Romans chapter 11, verse 25. We are in this age where my brothers and sisters, my Jewish brothers and sisters, they their hearts were hardened and they continue to be hardened and they, they're, they're missing the joy, of, the joy of repentance there. So does God actively harden our hearts? Um, I, don't, I don't think so. I don't think, I don't think so because John 3.16, right? God so loved the world that anyone who would believe, right? God, God made it available, but the reality of our sin and our fall and our, you know, our original sin and our condition of our fallen nature, we don't start wanting to love God. And so God has to cry out to us. God has to call out to us. And the reality is that even though salvation is available to all, not all will believe, right? And we know that. We see that over and over again in the scriptures. And part of that is because... Our hearts have grown hard. Our hearts have grown cold, and in the in the in the in the cycles of self worship, uh, that happens. Now, uh, here's another question that came in: Is it possible to share the gospel without using scripture? Uh, and and I think the answer is yes. Paul does that in in 
uh, Acts chapter 17 there in his appeal at the Areopagus in, in Athens. He, he doesn't quote scripture. He actually quotes a poet uh, speaking, a Greek poet speaking about Zeus. And he says, in him we move and live and have our being. He's, of course, not talking about Zeus. And he uses it as a pivot point to talk about Jesus and the resurrection. And so you can, you, can, uh, you can begin the conversation, I think, around that. But eventually, Paul gets to Jesus in the resurrection and the reality of Jesus in the re- resurrection. So, so while you can maybe start and open the door through philosophy or even, even understanding another religion or another belief set that somebody has and going, oh, let me, let, me, let me relate this in a way that you will understand it, we have to get to Jesus in the end because, um, be, because he's the only one that makes a, a difference. And so with that, the the building question comes, how does Paul know so much about their poetry and their philosophy? Really, the bigger question is this, what's the balance between studying scripture and studying secular culture? Uh, Paul is incredibly well-educated, okay? And and so Paul, I think, is not just incredibly well-educated, but he's well-versed on all all of that. He's, he's well-versed on Jewish theology. He's well-versed on um, Greek philosophy, all of those things. Paul comes from a very prominent family. He's well-educated. So frankly, we shouldn't be surprised that Paul is able to do this. Um, and so what really is the balance? Do we just need to be studying scripture or do we also need to be studying culture? And I think the balance is um, we need to be primarily studying scripture. Why? Because scripture is the authoritative truth of God. Um, but if we only study scripture and we don't know how to relate scripture or the truth of scripture back to our friends and our neighbors because we're so um, divorced or removed from the culture around us, um, that's that's a problem, right? Well, we see here in Acts chapter 17 this just this this beautiful movement by Paul where he understands their culture so well that he can speak about God without having to use the scriptures as a stumbling block to begin with so that he hooks them into his message, he gets them paying attention. And he actually, he, he confronts both the, 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 uh, the Epicurean philosophers, those who are pleasure-centered, and he confronts the, the Stoic philosophers, those who are reason-centered. Um, here in this same passage, in the same speech, and he does that because he understands their philosophical roots. Again, shouldn't be surprised, Paul's incredibly well-educated. Um, so we should be able to understand and diagnose the culture of our day. Um, and, and, and so we want to be aware of those things. We want to be a student of our surroundings so we can relate the truth of the gospel to it. But we do need to be primarily studying the scriptures because that is the, is the authoritative truth and word of God. And with that, this question of what we said, we don't want to be blown back and forth. So as we are studying culture, as we're studying the scriptures and our hearts are being rooted in the scriptures, um, how do we stand in truth or not be shaken back and forth, especially now in a world when the messages of acceptance seem noble, but the, that means uh, the means can uh, be contradicted to the, wor- to the word of God without being closed-minded and self-righteous. So Here's, I think what this question is asking is, how, how do we stand our ground and stand for truth in a world where it tells us if you want to be loving, you just have to be affirming of disordered desires. But we don't want to contradict truth in that. But we also don't want to be self-righteous, right? Or we don't want to be closed-minded, right? I think that's a, we don't want to be perceived that way. I, I, think, I think part of it is the way that we are not perceived as closed-minded or self-righteous is developing the skills of empathy. And empathy is where I feel what someone else is feeling. 
And so empathy is really the work of the heart. Uh, and so when I have empathy for someone, I'm doing the hard work to understand what they're feeling. Then that empathy uh, will move me to compassion, right? Or sympathy. Empathy moves me to sympathy. Sympathy is with my mind. I understand uh, what what's going on, and uh, and and then I can I feel with my heart, so I understand what's going on in my mind. I get your your conundrum. I get your situation. And then compassion is once we understand and feel for them, we then move to intervene or help them, right? And so I think I think that's part of the work of when we don't want to seem self-righteous, <laughs> we have to remember that we are works in progress and that we really need to work to understand what they're feeling and, and what's going on in their life. And not just simply condemn a behavior because, yeah, maybe the behavior isn't God-glorifying, um, but that behavior, that sinful behavior, that disordered desire is not their greatest need. Their greatest need is to know Jesus first and foremost, right? We can, ha we can have the most moral uh, wrapped up life. We can be, have the most morally perfect life uh, or perfect life. And, um, and yet, it, just like the rich young ruler, he did everything right. He comes to Jesus and he says, I've kept all the law and the commandments. Uh, how do I get to heaven? How do I get eternal life? And Jesus says, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And uh, the gospel tells us that, that he went away sad because he had a lot, right? And, and so um, our moralistic perfectionism does not get us into the kingdom of heaven. It is our faithful acceptance and submission to Jesus that does. And so we have to be careful. Um, are we trying to correct a behavior um, or are we, are we trying to introduce someone to Jesus? And in the end, it's Jesus that does the work of redeeming and reforming our behaviors that don't glorify him. So part of that is how do we not become self-righteous or closed-minded? Let's be empathetic. Let's do that hard work to feel what someone else is feeling. And empathy does not mean affirmation that we affirm their disordered desires. It just means we, we work really hard to understand what's going on, right? Um, and then, um, you know, how do we stand, how do we stand uh, for what's, what's good? And, and, and I think part of it is just to go, um, there's, a, there's a reality where God says he gives us the freedom to do whatever we want, right? So we're not here to force people to do what God says. God gives them the freedom to do whatever they want, so we should allow them the freedom to do whatever they want. Um, now, uh, what our job is, is to point out how when we do life God's way, it actually leads us into a better life. And, and it actually solves the problems and the anxieties and the worries uh, that we have in our lives. But the only way that we can do that is through the demonstration of through our lives, right? And, and so how do, we, how do we not be blown back and forth? Um, again, part of it is, or the, the root of it really is, we have to be strengthened by the truth of the scriptures. We have to be hiding God's truth in our hearts. And as we hide it in our hearts, we have to live it out. And as we live it out, well, then it reaffirms to us that, no, this really is the thing to hold on to. This really is the thing that leads us into flourishing, into goodness. That path of radical goodness comes through self-denial, the way of Jesus, not the path of self-worship. Right? And so that's really what our culture says. Self-worship gives us freedom and life. And, and, and the, the irony here is that it's the very the opposite that is true. Self-worship actually leads us to radical ruin. So we stand firm uh, by uh, hiding God's word in our heart and then obeying God's word, obeying God's values, obeying God's precepts and his truths. And as we do that, 
the goodness of those things are reaffirmed through our experience and spur us on to not give up on them. And so, so again, I think that's really how we, uh, we, we hide those things in us and we continue to follow, even though everything around us is telling us to go on the opposite, to go and worship ourselves and just give in to our desires and normalize those desires so that, um, so that in that way we'll be made whole, which is not, which is just not simply not true. So, um, great questions here again. I just love the conversation that we have around the scriptures. So thanks for sending those questions in, sending those questions in and here again. Thanks for uh, just, just jumping in and listening here on the podcast. I hope that it is encouraging you and strengthening you and equipping you uh, to go and to, to be like a Berean, uh, to go and, and scour the scriptures for yourselves and to test what is true um, because God, God wants to reveal his truth through us. He's given us his Holy Spirit to do that. We'll see you next week. Oh,